Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Florida Fishing Products, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Recently at Marsh Fest 2023, which was held at North Guana Outfitters in St. Johns County, I got a chance to sit down and record a live podcast with Captain Matt Chipperfield. Matt is well known for targeting sea trout, and in this podcast, we do a deep dive into the world of fishing that he loves. Matt lays out everything from ideal conditions to locations to the tactics he uses for locating monster fish. If you love technical fishing talk, this one is for you. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up as you're going along. But So what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning at? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's going to be. All right. Well, hey, Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're here at Marsh Fest and we're about to go on for a live Q&A. And what an amazing turnout, turnout first off. Incredible. I mean, for a first year festival to see this many people lined up down the side of the street, all the hundreds of people that are here, like this is awesome. It's well, really cool. What do you hope will come out of this? Uh, well, honestly, I think the, the local fishing community has kind of been hungry for something like this for a while. You know, back in the day, for a little while, while Blackfly was still around, we had the Black Tide Flood Tide Festival, which mm-hmm. is kind of the local gathering of all the anglers to come together and, uh, you know, just, you know, share fishy stories, uh, have local companies and local community members be able to put out their products that they want to get out. Um, in all honesty, though, I'd really just like to see more more network connecting. You know, people that are in the industry, captains like myself, talking to other captains, developing relationships, local businesses getting their foot in the door. I mean, there's a couple of new boat makers that are out there right now yep. that are looking to get their foot in the industry. Just more connections made, more networking, and, you know, building the community of Jacksonville, the fishing community more specifically, giving them more of a foot in the door and more of a hurdle in the industry. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun for me just to meet different people as well. And I love seeing people come together like this. This is the tournaments that I have gone to. this environment is my favorite part of just hanging out meeting people exactly and so it's cool to have that all kind of in one place great turnout good mix of captains and you know businesses and just community members so give us a rundown you love fishing north guana we're we're here kind of between st augustine and and jacksonville give Mm -hmm. us a rundown the fishery here the waters here so guana itself uh it's it's probably one of the most unique fisheries and ecosystems that exist not only in the state of Florida but in the nation. Um, It started out as a tidal river. Back in 1958 they put a dam on the river. It was all privately owned land and the owners were hardcore outdoorsmen. More specifically they were duck hunters. Mm -hmm. And by deciding to put a dam 12 miles south of the fresh watershed that we're currently sitting on, 
they would be able to accumulate fresh water into shallow zones and make a better duck hunting habitat for the migrating ducks coming down from up north. And that's exactly what happened. They made a really good duck hunting area out there. It's a really good ecosystem. They do like to roost in this area. But by putting a dam on an intracoastal river that essentially created a saltwater, brackish water, and freshwater lagoon, more brackish water, they did a few things that are very important. Number one, they locked in all of our sport fish. The sport fish couldn't actively migrate in and out, but they also created a great spawning habitat for those fish. They also locked in all of their food sources, mullet, crabs, shrimp, all the things that are inshore species, which are predominantly trout, redfish, black drum, and flounder, all those eat those things. So you have a lot of sport fish locked into a good spawning habitat with plenty of food. And the most important thing they did is they locked out all of their predators. There's no dolphins, there's no sharks. So by creating a habitat that's really, really good for those sport fish and keeping those apex predators away from the larger sport fish, once these fish get over 20 inches, there's not much in the lagoon that can eat them. There's no birds of prey there really that can lift them out of the water like an osprey and eagle. And there's no fish that are big enough to really eat a 20 inch fish in there other than some speckled trout who may take a swipe at them. Um, but that's what makes it such a productive fishery is you don't have apex predators like dolphins picking off our larger fish. You've got a lot of smaller fish coming up in the ranks because it's a good spawning ground and there's plenty of food out there for them. So they grow throughout their life cycle. They can grow into their old, fat, and happy. And you've got a lot of smaller fish coming up in the ranks. So that's what makes it what I consider to be a world-class fishery at times when it's really good is the abundance of fish and the size of some of the trout that we you know, have in that lagoon. Yeah, it's a really cool ecosystem, and we'll dive into that in the live Q&A here in, in yeah. a few moments at, at Marsh Fest. But with you, you were saying you had a different entry into fishing that a lot of people grow up and they do a lot of fishing with their dad or their uncle. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you got into fishing. I mean, I, I basically was fortunate enough to be raised really close to the ocean and be in contact with some people who were fishermen. But as a kid, you know, both my parents are from up north. They're both snowbirds who moved down. Um, mom's from uh, Ohio, dad's from Missouri, um, but they raised me real close to the ocean, so I had a bit of a waterman's effect. I was more of a surfer and more of a, um, an athlete when I was younger. I, you know, I spent a lot more time chasing soccer balls and waves than I did fish. Um, that all kind of changed in 2004 when I went to the University of Eckerd College in Tampa Bay and St. Petersburg. And I was lucky enough there to have a roommate throughout college who was Captain Tyler Capella. He is a full-time tarpon guide nowadays in Tampa Bay, and he's a really good guide. But he's the one who kind of introduced me um, to the, you know, the, the top tier of angling as far as you know, lures and fly fishing, stalking fish on a flat, sight casting, presenting baits to, and lures to fish, and uh, you know, doing all the tarpon and the snook and the mangroves. And that's when you know, the fire got lit in me, and I realized like, I, I really enjoy fishing. Um, he's the one who kind of put the hook in me, so to speak. And then when I moved back, in 2008, after I graduated, I was interviewing for jobs, had a lot of free time during the days, and started applying my new skill set of fishing to some of the local estuaries here. And I had a few trips into the Guana Lagoon, because at the time I was a kayaker and a paddleboard guy. Um, didn't really have access to boats or have a boat, but you know, kay kayaking in Guana is very popular. And I went out there and threw some topwater plugs a handful of evenings and mornings, and I was catching massive trout. Like I, And I knew from my experience in St. Pete, like massive trout are special. Like that's not something that's very common. And then I started spending hours upon hours inside of Guana Lagoon when I had those free times. And I, I, I just kind of snowballed. It wasn't something that I ever intended to do. Both Tyler and I went to college for a degree in environmental science and biology. And we graduated more with a degree in fishing. We used to skip classes and go yeah. fish on my kayak. Um, so it's not something I intended, but it just kind of snowballed into 
uh, a career. I, I, I'm a natural competitive person and played sports my whole life. And mm. so um, we had a, uh, some pretty popular local kayak tournament circuits that I decided that, you know, what's, what's enter and see how I measure up. Mm. And the first one I ever entered was the uh, Jacksonville Kayak Classic which at the time had been running for about 10 years. It was one of the biggest kayak tournaments in, in the world with over like 350 people. Uh, had people coming down from the East Coast and the Panhandle to come fish it. And I ended up winning. Um, I caught a 34-inch redfish to start the morning. Caught a 32-inch trout mid-morning, which is still to this day my personal best trout. It's the largest trout I've ever hooked. And then I caught around 4 o'clock that afternoon, many hours later, a 15-inch flounder to get one of the largest slams ever recorded in the tournament and won the tournament wow. and I kind of snowballed that into a career with North Juana Outpost here they were looking for a guide um, I had been a shop rat here for a little while kind of you know tinkering with all the toys in the shop and hanging out talking to Lauren and Gail the owners and uh, they told me you know we're looking to start like a guiding program if you want to you know head that up and started guiding with them and then realized that you know if I'm going to take a real run at this I need to get a captain's license I need to get a boat and you know really create a niche for myself inside of Guana. and that was back in 2014-15 when I started it's been about eight years now and I've got a, uh, a bay boat now that I also do some tarpon stuff with and you know near shore offshore stuff um, but Guana is still my niche and it, it's been an incredible journey to get here it's not something I foresaw happening not something I would have ever you know thought I was going to be a captain, but yeah. I absolutely love it. I just found something that I was good at, and I'm really passionate about it. So what do you guide out of here? Because I know you guys have some restrictions. Yeah, we have a horsepower restriction on Guana. It is extremely shallow. It's only, I mean, most spots in Guana there you're fishing, it's only two to three feet deep, maybe even less if you're pulling after reds on skinny water. Um, but averaging two to three feet deep with occasionally some four-foot spots, and part of the protective measures they've taken to make sure that you don't have any oversized vessels or giant boats out there is to put a horsepower cap at about 9.9 .9 or 10 horsepower motors. Um, so I had to look around for a while for a boat that I could get two or three clients on that was capable of being pushed by a 10 horsepower motor. And what I landed on was the Ancona Shadowcast. Mm. Um, they don't make that Shadowcast model anymore. They're focusing more nowadays on 17s and 18s that are more popular models. But it's a true micro skiff, technical pulling skiff. It can hold me plus two clients. Um, it's 16 feet long, has a five foot beam. A tower on the back and I use a 22 foot stiffy uh, pole or a, a, a trolling motor to move around inside a lagoon but that's the limitation on the boats in there and that's also one of the reasons Guana is still so special and doesn't have a whole lot of pressure from outside you know angling or other captains is the limitation on the motor and makes it hard to have a skiff in there that mm. you can really run a charter from that isn't a ginu or something really narrow and small. Off the top of your head do you know how big it is? Guana? Yeah. It's 12 miles long, almost okay. exactly 12 miles long. Um, and the biggest section in the middle where it's nice and wide toward the southern end, uh, probably about a quarter quarter mile wide, I would say. And are there a lot of ramps around it? No. Nope. There are two usable ramps for boats. One is at the southern end where the dam is located. There's a land bridge, obviously, that goes across the dam. There is a ramp that goes into the lagoon side on the north side of the, the, the uh, land bridge, and there's another... Uh, south side ramp that goes into the riverside mm -hmm. and then there is another ramp in the middle of the lagoon called six mile landing mm -hmm. it's more or less just a mud hole though it's not much of a ramp um, and there are certain times of the year where you can't even use that ramp because it's duck season and they close down certain sections of the lagoon during duck season or the water level is too low and you can't drop in so really the only spot where you can drop in boats is at the dam consistently um, north one outpost here we do have a kayak launch but unless your boat is really small, you're probably not getting out of here. It's more kayaks and paddle boards. So yeah. really two ramps. 
take me back a little bit to you jumping into guiding. What were you doing before that vocation? So um, when I graduated, I had a degree in environmental sciences and biology, and I was trying to kind of use that. I interviewed at Beaches Energy for a conservation specialist position. Um, I graduated in 2008 during what was labeled the Great Recession when a lot of people were getting laid, uh, laid off. So it was tough for me to find you know, a gig in my profession that I, I studied, and I started bartending to try and make ends meet and make some good money. And I did make great money bartending. That wasn't the best lifestyle, you know, all the drinking, staying yeah. up late and all that stuff. It was, wasn't was quite, who, you know, who I am, but it did give me my days free. So when I was bartending, I had a lot of afternoons and evenings that I could go fish before work. Mm. And I would get out in the morning and the afternoon and, you know, pack a lunch and go sit in Guana and just fish and have a lot of time and, and, and a lot of fun, too. But what I didn't realize is at the time I was wiring the place up. I was figuring it out and using it for my future and, and guiding. But, yeah, that's what I was doing more of. Yeah, what, what did it look like for you as far as wiring the place up and exploring it and kind of figuring it out? It, well, I'm naturally analytical, and I'm, I'm a big science nerd. Um, so, you know, having a background in biology and environmental sciences and some marine science that I studied, it, it kind of helped me look at the ecosystem from more of an analytical standpoint and not just arbitrarily wetting lines, seeing what I could catch. Um, I was noticing small, intricate relationships between the water, between the grasses, the ecosystem, how it functioned, um, how the fish function inside the ecosystem, how the ebb and flow of water in and out of there with fresh water versus salt water and certain times of the year with lowering and raising. Um, more or less, it's just like spending a lot of time out there, firsthand mm-hmm. experience. Um, and then over time, I was lucky enough when I started guiding to come into contact with some people who understood trout more than me guys have been doing it for 20 30 years um one of which is one of my good friends and former clients jay wright who's three-time world record holder for trout on fly Mm. he's an encyclopedia of trout um so coming across other trout enthusiasts other trout nerds uh science people uh just spending time firsthand experience trying baits seeing what does work what doesn't work trending the fish in the fishery over time and seeing how it changed really just a lot of firsthand experience and exposure Mm. yeah so I know that, you know, something that whenever the crew that I'm here with was excited to hear from you about was your world record trout on fly. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Give us we, the story and then give us kind of the, some of the, maybe the helpful tips out. Yeah. Of it. I mean, we earned it. Like, um, Jay, as I said, Jay now holds three world records, one of which was with me. Um, we've been at it for about five years. I met Jay about six years ago through a mutual friend who went to one of the seminars he had been doing with C.A. Richardson about trout. And he dropped in my card and told him, like, if you're interested in guana, you need to talk to this kid. Mm. And um, he came out on a fly charter with me and took me to school. And there's not a lot of people who come into guana that, like, full-on take me to school. And he, he put on in a master class in fly fishing for trout. Yeah. Showed me some flies that he was using. Showed me some methods. Um, talked a lot about salooner and lunar movement and how he targets trout around, especially in non-tidal areas, about how those lunar bodies really make a big difference in non-tidal zones because when he called me like he was you know normally you know a, a person calls me a client calls me for a charter they you know they they want me to pick time place whatever their availability is i'm going to pick the time the place how we're going to fish and all that he called me and he told me exactly what he wanted to do he just needed me to take him to where the trout like to be and he'll yeah. do the rest and that's exactly what happened he ended up catching nine trout that were between five to seven pounds on our first trip wow. and i'm back there just eyes like saucers like what in the world is going on right now this guy's incredible um but he's an encyclopedia of trout knowledge he really brought me along and showed me some of those things with lunar cycles times of the year how they spawn why they spawn why they become vulnerable when they do spawn um showed me some fly selection that he likes to use when honestly with with fly fishing for trout um it's, it's actually pretty simple there's not a whole lot of variations that mm. you're going to have maybe color 
and style of fly based on the water that you're in. But when it comes down to it, the two choices that I usually come down to, it's, is it, is it going to be a surface fly, like a popper or a gurgler? Uh, maybe a deer hair slider that can wobble back and forth on like a topwater plug would. Yeah. But predominantly on topwater, it's going to be some type of a gurgler, a popper, or maybe like a, a surface fly. Or if it's subsurface, it's probably going to be a bait fish pattern. Mm. EP, Farrar fibers, things like that, that can you can tie into that nice, sexy teardrop that's going to give you a mid-column to somewhat lower column presentation. And that's really all there is. After that, it's more figuring out when are the windows open? What are they keying in on that's going to make these fish feed? Because these big female trout that are between six, seven, even eight, nine, and ten years old, they don't get to be that size by being dumb and arbitrarily eating anything that swims past their face. They're very dialed into windows for feeding. They're not going to go chase baits. They're opportunistic. They're ambush predators. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for them to chase fish when they can wait for a mullet to mess up and swim past their face or a shrimp to become vulnerable. Um, so it's more about keying into certain windows. And in Guana, being a non-tidal lagoon, we do look a lot at salooners. We look a lot at lunar tide, uh, lunar calendars with full moons, new moons, uh, locations of the moon around the Earth during the salooner calendar. Um, and times of the year, you know, water temperatures. You know, fish being ectothermic animals, they're going to be developing their metabolism based on what the water's doing. You know, if you're in a tidal zone, tide's going to be a big one. You know, what tide do you like? What time of year do they stage up shallow? What time of year do they stage deep? Um, all of that are things that you have to be very cognizant of when you're fishing for trout because they're they're not easy, especially the big ones. Like I said, they're, they're not mm -hmm. dumb. But times like the spawn, when they need to feed a lot more to produce the eggs, they become more vulnerable. Um, sometimes in the winter when they like to push shallow and find warm water, like in Tampa Bay or Mesquite Lagoon or in Texas when they push up real shallow to find warm water and stranded baits, they become more vulnerable then. But otherwise, you know, they're difficult. And it takes a lot of time to figure that out. So it, it's just been, it's been a long journey of figuring this fish out. And as much as I know about them, I still, compared to people like Jay Wright or, or um, mm -hmm. some of the guys out in Texas, um, Jay Watkins, junior, senior, those, I mean, those are legends. And they are incredible in their, their depth of knowledge on the fish. With all that information, do you hold that in your head or do you actually have a way of categorizing it? I do have a way. I, what I've actually started doing the past two or three years, because I am getting a lot of guys coming from out of state to fish for these trout. Um, Texas guys tend to stay put because obviously they got some good trout fishing. But the, the Panhandle, Louisiana, all the way up down the East Coast to around South Carolina, North Carolina, get a lot of guys from there. I had a lot of guys coming from out of state that you know wanted to know when's the best time for me to, to do this. Um, and predominantly it's usually going to be sometime in the spring or late winter um, when those fish are fat and they're hungry and they're impressive body sizes. Um, so I had to have a way to put them in the calendar and organize like, okay, when, when do I think is the best time? And that's when I started pulling up salooner calendars and just, you know, from past experience knowing that, you know, usually towards February we're going to start warming. Mm. We're going to start entering the spawn usually around early Feb, mid-Feb to March and April and May for sure. Um, so those windows are usually when I'll start looking real hard for these mm -hmm. fish. But the wintertime is honestly a great time to go trout fishing as well. Um, but that's how I kind of categorize and organize it. I'll look at tides. I'll look at moon cycles. I'll look at certain times of the year knowing that these are probably going to be the days that I'm going to triage for mm -hmm. better days than not. And with all of your notes as you're, you're going out and you're looking at certain grasses, you're looking at certain things that are happening with the lunar ca calendar, you're, are, are you writing down in a journal all this stuff? I, I try to keep a journal, but sometimes I, I, you know, I'll go on like five, six, seven, eight day fishing benders with clients where it's just, it just becomes very tough to have sure. the discipline to sit down and yeah. write these things down. I do keep a mental catalog of a lot of, I, I do mm -hmm. have, I wouldn't say it's, it's not a photographic memory or anything like that, but I do 
I'm, when I get into something, I keep, I'm, I'm a detailed-oriented person. Like I, I, I can remember certain catches and certain trends. But I do, on occasion, will keep try and keep a fishing journal where I'll write down some strange things that I've noticed or like little trends that I'm noticing or areas that are productive over others. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the calendar, too, and the yeah. lunar calendar, and keeping track of the days that, hey, we crush it this day. Everything came together. This is probably what it is. Yeah. You know? so it's, it's, it's hard to catalog all that information, especially when you take into account things like the, the atmosphere, you know, what, what was the pressure doing? What was the wind doing? What was the temperature? You know, how was I moving the lures? What selection was I using? What sink profile did the fly or the lure have? Uh, what color seems to be trending over time mm. versus what's not working anymore? Like, it's, it's a lot. But it, it, the more detailed-oriented you can get and the more analytically you can fish, the more you're going to get those little bits of insider trading info that lets you know this is a trend like this is something to this mm. it's not just happenstance like one of the things i'll talk about when i give my little seminar here one of my favorite sayings on the boat is no eat is arbitrary with lure fishing and fly fishing you, you didn't get lucky you you did something right yeah you know, was it the rate that you were moving the fly was mm. it the place that it was in was it the atmospheric conditions was it the moon cycle was it the current was it the tide was it the time of the year all that is very important when you're doing trophy fishing for fish that don't often eat like other smaller ones would mm -hmm. if you were giving i know you're going to go through some of this in the seminar but if mm -hmm. you were giving the top couple do's and the top couple don'ts of trout fishing what would they be oh that's a good question um do definitely pay attention to your tides like i was saying your tides your atmospheric conditions your temperatures and your moon cycles because those are where a lot of the natural phenomenon is going to come into keying you into a good bite um don't move the lure so fast now one of my favorite things that jay and i have talked about is a lot of these bigger trout like i said earlier didn't get to be so big and fat by chasing everything that moves mm. it's comparable to the lion on the serengeti plane mm. it's going to take down a wounded gazelle or a weak animal before it chases after a full-blown healthy bison that it's going to take a lot of energy to heat moving very methodically and very slowly while fishing even the pace of the boat you know covering your water but moving the lures and the flies very slowly. Mm. Twitch, twitch, pause, nice long dramatic pauses in your retrieve are going to allow these somewhat lazy predators and smart predators to mm. jump on your on your 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 lure or your fly faster. I see a lot of guys that start out, you know, that they're 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 fishing fast and they're moving the lure a lot and they're twitching and pulling and bombing. And like it just slow down. Slow down, move slowly, move methodically and deliberately mm. and cover your water. Especially if you're blind casting like I am a lot. You're gonna need to cover your water. Don't stick to just one condition, like oyster bars that you know are good. Well, try some rocks and docks. Mm -hmm. Try some different tides. You gotta be a little bit more experimental with some of these fish before you're gonna find your niche of what is working for you. Mm. Yeah, the number one mistake I see in most guys, especially in Guana, is moving too fast. Moving the lure too quick, moving the boat too quick, turning the trolling motor on fast, pulling the boat quickly, move slowly, move methodically, give these chance of fish to feed. Mm. All right, let's just say that we got rained out and we had to do some cool stuff around here. That's one of the things I like doing is kind of collecting as I go into different areas because I haven't been in this particular zone and I haven't fished this particular zone. I fished St. Augustine, I fished Jacks, I fished Palm Coast, but you know, in this area, what are some good things to do just kind of around town for people who are well, maybe off the Well, if it's a Sunday, Jags games. Like I, I really, uh, now the Jaguars are not terrible anymore. So yeah. It's more fun to do. Uh, to see the Jaguars on Sundays. 
Um, weekdays, we do have a pretty good music scene here in Jacks. I'm a, I'm a big music mm-hmm. person. I love going to music. Um, some of my lo- friends here locally, the, the Honey Hounds, the Hooligans, who are playing here today, um, if they're playing, usually go catch, um, catch them at some local bars and places. Mm-hmm. There's actually a super cool music venue that's a little bit under the radar. I'll give them a little plug now. It's called the, the Blue Jay Room. Yep, we they, went there last night. Cool for, place, uh, right? Leon Mighton. It's like yeah. a little blues bar. Like They have mm-hmm. some cool little in-house rules about being quiet and respecting the artists and yeah. everything. Very cool little place that girl named Kara runs there. It's really cool. Um, we're getting ready to open up the old Beach Bowl. We've all been waiting for that. Um, the Beach Bowl was a Jacksonville Beach staple. It was our only bowling alley we had out here. And they've done a multi-million dollar remodel on wow. the building. And they're getting ready to open up like a terrace bar up there. And they're redoing all the lanes and lounges and all that. So that's going to be fun when that opens up. Um, or maybe surfing. Like, you know, I'm a surfer. So we got some swell. I'm going to be out there doing that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty activities oriented. I don't like to sit around too much. So I... I usually stay on the go, moving around, doing something physical. Uh, maybe going to do a hike in Guana. You know, mm-hmm. Guana does have a great lagoon there, but we also have you know miles of trails that stretch throughout the preserve, yeah. and you can go see all the interior and the wetland area, and then the coast side, and then the, Very cool, the upland yeah. forest. Like it's cool there. Man, well, I'm excited. We're about to run over and get on stage and no. do a little live Q and A and really try to dial in some some uh, tactics on catching big trout, man. So Looking thanks for the it. time. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you for having me. Let's do it. Oh it is about that time. We do have the Captain's Collective live podcast starting here momentarily, followed by Trap Talk with Captain Matt Chipperfield. All right. Well, hey, and welcome to a live Q&A with the Captain's Collective podcast. Can you guys give it up to Captain Matt for coming out and talking trout with us today at Marsh Fest? Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, we just recorded the first part of the podcast just to get a little bit of Matt's background story, so you guys will be able to go back and listen to that. But we're going to do a deep dive Q&A into all things trout, fly fishing for trout, topwater trout, and then following this, Matt's going to do a special seminar to help break down his method and approach. But Matt, the first thing that I want to ask you in a live Q&A is what is the ideal situation if you could only fish one day, one situation for large trout, what are you looking for? That's that's a loaded question, but I would either pick the lead up to the full moon, the lead up to the new moon. I would probably look for a favorable tide if you're in a tidal zone. If you're in Guana, we don't have a tide, so that wouldn't really matter. I'd probably pick first thing in the morning before the light is up. I'd have a top water plug tied on slightly warm water and i would fish top water and then transition over into subsurface as the light came up but lead up to the new moon or the full moon and uh hopefully some favorable tide conditions or moon conditions along with some low light conditions to throw top water what is slightly warm water what water temperature are you looking for Uh, so we're we're in florida so our our definition of slightly warm is probably hotter than what most people think it is Um, right now you know we still have hot water it's still hot outside i'm sure some of you can feel it right now uh, I would consider hot water to be in the 80s, chilled water to be in the 70s, and then cold water to be 60 and below. Now, I know you pay a lot of attention to the lunar calendar. What is an ideal situation when it comes to the, the moon for catching trout? Um, so it, it's, it's very important in non-tidal lagoons to be dialed in to what your lunar calendar is. And that is, uh, it's a little bit on the voodoo side of trout fishing it's something that a lot of people aren't going to look at but when you're dealing with a a very intelligent apex predator that is not dumb they're not feeding you know arbitrarily throughout the column they're usually going to feed in tight little windows 
you're going to want to look at all your atmospheric conditions, your temperature, your winds, your tides, all those things, but you're also going to want to look at the moon. You know, the moon has a lot of influence and pull on these fish as well as on the water, whether it's tides or non-tidal. Um, the salooner cycle is really just the relative position of the moon and the sun relative to where the earth is at, more specifically the moon. And there are four specific times during the day that the moon has periods and, and locations that are more influential for trout to feed than when they're not. The two primary ones you're going to target first are called majors. It's when the moon is directly over your head or directly under your feet. And that's as it orbits around the earth. Those two periods when you're directly overhead or underfoot are called majors. They're two hour long periods. Trout have been shown to feed heavily during those periods. If you're ever out on a rough day of fishing and you know nothing's happening and all of a sudden it turns on and then it might turn right back off, you may want to check your moon calendar to let and see what the moon calendar is doing during that period. If you have a major, that might be what turned it on. There's also two other periods that can be very advantageous to take advantage of, and that's what we call minors. It's when the moon is rising on the horizon or when the moon is setting on the horizon. These one and two hour periods throughout the day are going to influence these fish to feed, especially when you're in a non-tidal area like Guana. The water doesn't move out there. So the only thing that's really going to stoke a bite is going to be atmospheric conditions, whether they be thunderstorms, flash cooling periods, incoming fronts, post-front periods, salooner cycles, moon cycles, or temperature bases. So that's mainly what you're going to look at when you're trying to dial in a trout bite. Because remember, this is a very, very smart apex predator. They're not arbitrarily feeding. They're going to pick tight little windows to do their damage. Because if they don't, they're going to get caught by a dolphin. They're going to get eaten. They're going to get caught by an angler. Something's going to happen to remove them. So those tight little salooner windows are often very, very advantageous to take advantage of. Um, there's a, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jay Wright, who has become kind of my trout mentor. He's also uh, a really, really good trout angler. He actually went back in the history of the IGFA record books, and he, he looked up the moon cycles that coincide with every single IGFA tr uh, speckled trout catch. He found that 70% of the world record set, uh, speckled sea trout caught were caught during major or minor moon cycles. Wow. That's three out of four fish. That's very, you know, statistically significant. And if you're going to ignore that, well, then you, you might not do so well in big trout. But those are the moon cycles. So let's say that me and you are going to a new place. We're not going to your home waters, and we're going to try to locate trout. And we're waking up early in the morning. We just had some coffee. We go out. Are you starting shallow, working deep, top? working bottom talk me through an approach of what you would take on a new body of water um well it, the general school of thought is that a lot of these fish during low light periods either at night or early mornings or later in the evenings a lot of these fish are going to push up shallow uh part of the reason is a lot of the bait will go shallow during the nighttime to avoid being eaten in deeper water by fish that could easily pick them off but it's also that they just tend to push shallow during low light periods. And trout aren't the only ones that do this. You know, flounder are known to do this. Um, you can even find redfish. A buddy of mine, Captain Chris Schultz, has been out at night recently, seen a lot of redfish shallow. Like, that's just things that happen. Um, but the pattern for a lot of these fish is to go shallow during low light periods, and then they're going to end up pushing a little deeper as the light gets higher. With trout, it may be because they actually do have a lens in their eye that is like a night vision lens. And if they don't want to be in shallow water in the middle of the day looking up into the sun having their eyes burn they're going to move deeper so i would start shallow i would find a grass flat i would find a shallow oyster bar i would find a drop off or a ledge or a rock bottom that is holding shallow water fish for me shallow water is usually going to be between 
five to six foot or shallower, maybe three to four or even shallower than that. If you're a guy in Texas, these guys are fishing up in, sh- in bays and coves that are, I mean, six inches, 10 inches, 12 inches deep. And that's where the big fish are going to push to look for stranded bait fish in low light periods. As the light got higher, I would transition into deeper water, moving water, uh, water that has wind pushing, water that has current moving through it. And that's where I'm going to look for more fish staging in schools and in number during the daytime. And I'm probably going to stop fishing topwater plugs in low light. And I'm going to start fishing subsurface lures, things that are going to get down to the level of the fish that are sitting in deeper water. Talk to us about selecting colors for flies or lures. Ooh. And talk to us about how that ties into what you're looking at with the water clarity and also the grass and what's around it. And the easiest way to break down color, which can be, I mean, that, that's a rabbit hole in and of itself, picking colors of flies, picking colors of lures. Um, the easiest way to decide is your water clear, is it clean, or is it dirty and brown? Our region up here, we're well known for having tea-stained brackish water. So you're probably going to pick colors that are a bit brighter, things that are going to get attention. There's generally three schools of thought. You're either going to go natural and clear water, you know, greens, whites, silvers, things that you would normally find in nature. And that's for clean water. In dark tea-stained water like we have here, you're probably going to go on the, on the side of brighter baits, pinks, oranges, golds, chartreuse. The old saying we have in the South is if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use. There does something that holds true to that. Um, bright baits in dark water are going to catch attention. The opposite side of the dark water thing is actually choosing dark baits, things with purples and blacks, maybe even some reds. Um, but gold, chartreuse, pink, orange, all of that in dark water is going to catch the attention of these fish. And you also got to remember, just because the color of that bait to our eye is pink or orange or purple or chartreuse, under the water, the spectrum of color changes. So certain things are more visible than others. But a dark bait or a colorful bait in dark water, something that's a little unnatural, is going to catch their attention. On the opposite side, if you're fishing the crystal clear waters of Tampa Bay or South Florida or the Keys, and you start throwing a bright bait like that, that's out of place. That's not natural. You're going to want to go with more natural colors, greens, silvers, and whites. That's usually how I break down my color spectrum. And how are you thinking through size? Are you, do you have a, do you start kind of with a larger bait and work down, vice versa? So the school of thought on big trout, um, big bait, big fish. That is, that is true. Now elephants do eat peanuts as well. You are gonna catch some monster fish on some smaller baits. I would start more towards the middle, not small, not big, somewhere in the three to four inch range. Uh, whether it's fly or artificial lures, something that's more mid-range. And you can get a feel for what size of fish is eating your lure, how many are jumping on it. If you find yourself catching large trout, though, and it's something I'll talk about in the seminar, do not be afraid to throw a big bait. Throw something big. Throw something that almost feels awkward for how large it is. These fish are not afraid to eat big baits. They will choke down large 12-inch mullet. So you're going to want to size up. If you find yourself catching what we consider to be gator trout in the 20 to 24 or over range, size up. You're going to eliminate some of the smaller fish, the 15 to 18 to 20 inch schoolies, but that's not why we're out there. We're trying to catch a trophy on most of these charters that I run. So you're gonna wanna size up, but I would start more mid range, more three to four inch baits. You can go smaller with little miradines and things like that, but more mid range three to four before you size up when you start getting the really large fish. Now, are you ever in scenarios where you're sight fishing for trout in clean water? And if so, 
how do you like to approach that? Um, the last the last time I really got the opportunity to do that was in Tampa Bay, um, where I went to school. During the winter time uh, in Tampa Bay, uh, trout will push really shallow into the grass flats, much like they do in Texas. Unfortunately, most of my area of expertise lies in Guana, and if you've ever been out in Guana and seen it, the water is chocolate. You know, it's chocolate milk. It's brown. It's tea stained. You're not really going to see very many trout tailing or backing or pushing water enough to sight cast to a fish in, in Guana. Um, best opportunities in Florida I know for that are really Tampa Bay or Mosquito Lagoon where you can find fish pushed up shallow and you're going to do a, a proper lead on them. You're going to treat them like bonefish. You're going to get it way out in front of them. Um, they call bonefish the ghost of the flats, but in all honesty, I consider trout to be in the same class. They're very, very spooky. They have a very pronounced lateral line. They can feel you coming. They have really good visual acuity. So if you're bombing baits on their heads, they're going to push and they're going to move. In darker water, you can start getting closer to these fish. But the only sight fishing that I usually get to do for trout and guana is if they're blowing up the surface. If I can see them pushing shrimp or blowing up a bait pod, that's when I can sight cast to them. And largely it's going to be with a topwater plug because I want to see that big yellow mouth open up on my plug. Um, but as far as dark water opportunities, generally not going to get those shots on, on, on actual sight casting opportunities. But grass flats, shallow water oyster bars things in south and in, uh, southwest Florida, that's when you might get an actual opportunity to side cast. Now, we have a lot of people here who are into fly fishing, and I know that you are also into chasing trout on fly, which I've interviewed over 100 different captains, and I've never found somebody who I think is quite as passionate about trying to get on trout on fly. So tell us about some of the top fly patterns for catching trout. Um, I'm actually very simple when it comes to my selection of flies for trout. Um, it's either going to be a surface fly, like a big shrimp gurgler, or it's going to be a big popper. There are a few bait fish pattern flies that you can keep at the surface, like a deer hair slider, that you can almost you know, do the walk the dog action back and forth. But for the most part, a lot of these surface flies are gonna be floaters, and they're gonna be breaking the surface of the water, and they're gonna be mimicking shrimp. It's hard to mimic a bait fish with a fly on the surface. The other school of thought is if you want to mimic a bait fish and you're feeding mid-column fish or towards the top column or even towards the bottom column, it's largely going to be bait fish patterns. These are going to be big EP flies. EP stands for Enrico, Enrico Pluglisi. He came up with a long fiber that you can tie into that sexy teardrop shape that we all like. The other fiber that I throw a lot is uh, Steve Farrar. It holds the shape a little bit better than EP does on occasion, doesn't get as tangled. But big bait fish pattern flies, things that you might find yourself throwing at tarpon or largemouth bass or pike or a few of those species are what you're going to use when you're targeting these big trout. And generally, if it's subsurface, it's going to be some type of a bait fish pattern, EP or Ferrar fiber. If I'm targeting topwater, it's going to be a gurgler, large shrimp pattern, or a like a big double-barreled bass popper. Mm. And I'm going to let you, during your seminar, get into a little bit more specifics about some area, some things specific to this area. But when you're not chasing trout, what are some fish that you really love to chase? Um, well, my, my top three fisheries are probably number one would be the trout fishery. Um, right now, we're coming to the tail end of what is my, one of my favorite seasons to fish, and that's the flood tide. You know, pushing up skinny into the flooded grass, seeing all the creatures and little critters inside the grass, and then watching a redfish barrel its way through the grass, violently tailing and backing, being able to get 15, 10 yards from the fish and put flies in front of it and watch them smoke the fly like that that never gets old. It's highly addictive. Um, the other one that I go bananas for every year, every summer is tarpon. 
Uh, Tarpon, you know, as cool as trout are and as violent as they are, Tarpon are just, they're just different. They're, they're 65 million year old dinosaurs that can pull like a train. They jump six feet out of the water doing cartwheels and front flips. Uh, you know, they, I like to tell my clients the first 15 minutes of a Tarpon fight are fun. The following 30 to 45 are just straight up punishment. And that's when you draw respect for the fish when he's still beating you up 30, 40 minutes into the fight and you can't move them. Um, but tarpon and the, on the beach, beach tarpon, when you're sight casting in the pogey pods or sight casting them migrating down the beach, uh, flood tide redfish, and then guano lake trout, probably my three favorite. Have there been any books, TV shows, resources that have been helpful for you developing your approach that you can maybe point to to some people here? Yeah. Well, I mean, I do have some trout mentors, and I'll get into them during the seminar. Um, some people that have showed me you know, more, more in-depth knowledge of these trout. Um, some social media forums are actually really good ways to, to interact with other trout fishermen and get some information. One of them is called uh, The Speckled Truth. It's uh, run by a guy and a couple people out of Louisiana in the Texas area. It's just a forum on Facebook and on Instagram for the people to come together and share important catches and share trends across lures and you know deeper knowledge stuff of trout. The other one is uh, Release Over 20. It's based out of Charleston. It's associated with Z-Man fishing and I-Strike fishing. Um, it's run by Dave Flad, who is also a trout enthusiast and a conservation enthusiast. A lot of these trout groups I know, are based around conservation of this fish and how unique and important they are. Um, I actually I had a client give me a book though it's called Texas Trout Fishing Tomorrow and it was written by a longtime guide in Texas where if you guys aren't familiar with Texas it's it's kind of the hub of speckled trout fishing I mean it, those guys over there are all they want to do is go fish for speckled trout you show up to a boat ramp on a Saturday at Texas and it looks like there's a tournament going on every single Saturday there's nothing but guys going out ready to head into the, boat, the bays there in the shallow areas and go fish for big trout um, but Texas Trout Fishing Tomorrow talks a lot about how trout fishing has changed over time with the amount of pressure from people and the amount of captains and the amount of anglers that are out there these days. Um, and it's actually really fun to read all these old famous catches of large trout in all these historical areas like Laguna Madre. Um, and the captains give their testimonials about how the trout fishing has changed and conservation and methods to target them. Um, but Trout Fishing Tomorrow, the book, is really good. Uh, the Speckled Truth and the release over 20 forums on social media are solid. And then, you know, just hanging out with trout bums and trout nerds like myself and just sharing stories. It's one of the best ways you can learn. Well, I'm really grateful for an opportunity to sit down and learn from you today. Can you all thank Matt for coming out and doing a live Q&A? Thank you, guys. I appreciate having it. And thank you, thank you so much for showing up, guys. The turnout here today is awesome. Like, this is really cool to see. And to North Guan Outpost and the organizers, like, this is awesome. Thank you so much for coming out. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to let you get set up on your trout seminar, and you'll take it away. Thanks for listening to Captain's Collective. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation together. Help us out by leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please continue to share with friends and family. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.